Ephesians 6 tonight, Ephesians 6 and verse 17, we are on, well, some would say the last piece of armor, others would argue for another, and we'll come to that, but uh, Ephesians 6 and verse 17, the sword of the Spirit uh, tonight, we'll look at that, Ephesians 6 verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, remind you that you're to take it, and the word take there uh, means to receive it, um, that you receive it from God. This is, by the way, it's interesting, um, when the Bible speaks of itself, it speaks in terms of receiving it, which is important in this day and age. And we live in a unique time, about the last 150 years or so, that um, textual criticism uh, came, uh, came about And the idea of textual criticism is that we have to use some scientific method to determine the authenticity of words and phrases and passages of Scripture. And um, that's not what we see in the Word of God. The Bible, when it speaks of itself, always speaks in terms of believers receiving the Word of God. And the way that the Word is received is not through scholarship, but rather through preaching. It is the preaching of God's word that was intended from the beginning, intended to be, in this New Testament era, intended to be the means of passing the word from generation to generation. Paul described it to Timothy, the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. This is the means, the the stream of transmission, if you will, of the word of God. So when we receive this, when we take the sword of the spirit, it's not something we're making for ourselves, but something we're receiving that's given to us. But I'm preaching already and I'm supposed to pray first. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the word of God. I thank you for its power its liveliness in our lives. And I pray, Lord, that we would look to your word as our defense, the defense for our soul, the defense against Satan and his attacks, but also as a weapon that can be used to drive back Satan and all of his doubts and all of his discouragement, all of his temptations and all of his wiles. And I pray that we would put it to good use, that we would enter the fray, enter the battle with armed with the sword of the spirit. We ask it in Jesus name. Amen. No matter how strong your armor and how much armor you might have. Nobody wants to go into battle unarmed, right? You've got the armor on, you've got it in place, but you need something to fight with. Right. We all want something to fight with. Nobody wants to go out there and be the like the um, punching bag for the enemy so that the enemy will just smash us with their swords and their battle axes and so on. And we're just to run around with our armor on, I guess, running into the enemy uh, or something or just going out there into battle with our shield and hiding behind the shield and dodging the spears and the fiery darts and the sword thrusts. Of the enemy. The best kind of armor made of the best kind of metal and covering the most vital parts of the soldier are no good for warfare if we have no weapon. We need a weapon. So we're glad to learn that God doesn't send us into battle wearing nothing but our armor. He gives us a sword so that we can be prepared to defeat the enemy. One thing. If he didn't give us a sword, then we would be forced just to, in the battle, our role in the battle would be just to to absorb all the blows uh, of the enemy's sword. We'd be forced to be passive in the battle, and that is certainly not what God intended. To enter the battlefield without engaging the enemy, uh, this is not what we do uh, as Christian soldiers. The sword gives us the ability both to ward off the enemy's blows and to strike back with a blow or two of our own. So again, we have that shield of faith. That's wonderful. 
And we can ward off the enemy's blows with that. But when you're in hand-to-hand combat, you also need a weapon. And a, a sword is for defense as much as it is for offense. The armor of God enables us to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, if we would stand in the battlefield, we must be prepared to fight. We cannot just stand passively in the battlefield. The sword is designed, as I said, both for offense and for defense. We use the sword to defend ourselves when the enemy seeks to run us through, to ward off his blows, to parry his thrusts. Whereas the rest of the armor protects us passively by being securely in place and being good, solid armor, the sword is the most immediate and active kind of defense. With, with the shield, I still am somewhat passive. I hold the shield and attempt to block his shots, his, uh, block his shots, block his uh, throws or whatever. I'm thinking basketball, but you don't block with the shield. But, um, but with the sword, I also am countering his thrusts. I'm, I'm parrying, as they say, um, in swordsmanship. We use the sword to resist the devil so that we don't give a passive kind of resistance to the blows of the enemy. Again, God did not intend for us to be the punching bag in the battle. And this is good for us. We're called to fight. We aren't called to subject ourselves to whatever um, abuse the enemy might give us. Uh, <clears throat> we are given armor uh, you know, and, but the point of the armor is not just so that we won't die when the enemy is abusing us in the battle. The point is to protect the vital part of ourselves, but God gives us a sword because he wants us to fight, to engage the enemy. And we do that with the word of God. That's the sword of the spirit. So when the enemy hurls his fiery darts at us, we have the shield of faith. And if they get past that shield of faith, we have other armor to protect our vital organs. When the enemy attacks with temptation, though, we strike back with truth. And when the enemy attacks with false teaching, we strike back with truth. And when the enemy offers us rationalizations and excuses, we strike back with truth. We use the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, to counter the enemy. Now, the armor of God is not just for us as individuals. It is for the church. I want you to notice, I may have pointed this out before, but it's important to notice this. Paul directs his instructions to the entire church. Notice that he doesn't use the singular second person, which would be a thee or a thou but he uses the, the plural second person, you, take unto you the whole armor of God, he says. So he's speaking to the entire church at Ephesus. Now, of course, the way that the armor of God is taken on is individually, but yet a part of the purpose of the church is to arm and equip the soldier for duty, for fight. So we as a church and every one of you think Okay, so I tell the army, take on the armor, put on your armor. That requires each soldier to put on the armor. But the general's obligation, the general's responsibility is to make sure that the whole armor army has taken on, has put on their armor so that we're ready for fight, ready for battle. That's why in, in our modern day military, there are inspections, troop inspections, and so on. They come through and they look to make sure that your uniform is as it ought to be, to make sure that your equipment is in place and that it is ready to be used. Even so, as a church, we want to make sure that we are armed and ready for battle. And so Paul is giving that instruction to the church and we as members of the church must put on the armor individually. The whole church taking on the armor of God. We do this by hearing the preach word, preached word, 
carefully applied, and then by putting into practice what we hear from the Word of God. This is, these are simple things, but this is the way the church is armed for battle. When we come into the Lord's house on the Lord's day and we open the word together, we are taking to ourselves the whole armor of God. And then we go out from here into the various callings that God has given us where we are, as we've talked about in Sunday school, extending his lordship throughout the world in various ways. And we go armed for battle because we're in a battle. That's what this is all about. So really these um, mundane uh, routines of the Christian life, going to church, hearing the word preached, going back out into the world, so to speak. I mean, the church is in the world, uh, but we go into our work and spread the dominion of Christ around the world. This is, this is how it works. This is the way it operates. We hear on Sundays, Wednesday night, we hear the word preached. We hear what our duty is. Sometimes I hope, I mean, I, when I was in the pew and not in the pulpit, my goal, my desire in every service, Lord, please give me something that I need to do. Give me something that I need to believe. Give me build me, strengthen me, help me to have something I can sink my teeth into and meditate on throughout the week. This should be the goal. It's not a different goal for me as the pastor. When I stand up to preach, I want, before I stand up, I want to be gripped by the word of God. I want the message to have a hold of me. I want to believe in it. You want me to believe in it too. Because um, there's nothing worse than listening to somebody preach something they don't really, like they're really not engaged with and committed to. So this is, this is how it's working in us. And then throughout the week, we're putting that into practice. And we're absorbing that and trying to make that part of us, who we are. This is, this is what it means to take the sword of the Spirit. I'm, I'm ahead of myself by a mile. So let me bring it back and let's let's walk back to that. All right. The armor of God is for the church. And so arming ourselves with the truth of God's word, we use it to encounter to to counter the enemy when he attacks. Let's consider the use of this important piece of the Christian's armor. First of all, let's consider the word, the, the, the armor itself, what it is, the sword of the spirit. And on this. Paul is very clear, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. So let's talk for a moment about that. what that Word is not. All right, I encountered someone online, and you know I try to write pretty regularly, and he argued that <clears throat> where the Bible says that the Word of God which liveth and abideth forever is not talking about the Bible, is talking about Jesus because Jesus is called the word, and after all, the Bible doesn't live, he said. Never mind that Hebrews 4 says that the word of God is quick and powerful, like alive and powerful. And he had some, it's amazing to me always, the lengths people will go to in order to dismiss or disregard the idea that God has kept his words. They'll say, they'll admit, yes, he's kept his word, providentially, we have this, you know, it's miraculous, but it's amazing that it's still there. But not the words. God never made any promises about them. There shall not fail one word of all his good promise. Right? One word, that would be the words, right? But nonetheless, um, so the sword of the Spirit is not Jesus Christ. Okay? Let me explain why. It's not. He is called the word. It's true. That is his name. And as the word, Jesus reveals God, the father in the fullest and most meaningful. And I'd add the most personal way possible. 
Jesus does. We see um, and we're delighted to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We beheld the glory of God, full of grace and truth, as John 1 tells us. But Jesus is not the Holy Spirit's sword. Jesus is not the Holy Spirit's sword. In John's vivid picture of Jesus in Revelation 19, he tells us the name of our Messiah returning on his white horse. He tells us his name. He calls him the word of God. And then he tells us that he has a sharp sword in his mouth. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And Jesus is not a sword. Jesus has a sword. And he most certainly is not the sword of the Holy Spirit. The sword of the Spirit is the revealed word of God. Scripture, the writings of Scripture. God has revealed himself, not only in Jesus, the fullest revelation. But look, where is Jesus revealed? But in the written word of God. And God reveals himself in the written word of God. It is the writings of scripture then, inspired by God, by means of holy men of God who spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now, we can't escape the Trinity in any of these things. We, the, the Trinity is pervasive in the armor of God because it's the armor of God, right? And... We have the helmet of salvation, which is the salvation provided for us by Jesus Christ. And we have the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And the same thing goes for the word of God itself. The the writings of scripture, sacred writings. They are the word of God. They are given by holy men of God who spake as they were moved. They reveal to us. Jesus Christ, and by means of Jesus as revealed in Scripture, we see a fuller picture of who God is. So the Bible, Jesus said, search the Scriptures, uh, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. He was pointing to all the writings of the Old Testament when he said that. The Old Testament, if the Old Testament reveals Jesus to us, then surely the New Testament does because the New Testament consists of the Gospels and then the Epistles, which are all unpacking the truth of the Gospels for us. So it is the writings of Scripture which have been kept pure in every age by God's almighty power and providence that we are to live by, that we are to take up as our sword. We are taught to live by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. The kept words of Scripture. So the sword of the Spirit then is the word revealed, the word given, if you will. And the sword of the Spirit is the word believed, the word we live by. We must not approach the word of God like a collection of curiosities which we use for amusement to entertain our minds. The word of God that is a weapon, that is the sword of the spirit, is not a textbook to increase our knowledge or make us sound smarter or more sophisticated. The word that is a weapon is our life, the Bible as our life that we live by. And we receive it as it is in truth, the very word of God. We search them, as we said, because they testify of Christ. We embrace them 
as the truth, embrace them. We receive and embrace and we live by them. We stake our life on them, our future on them, our eternity on the truth of God's word. We follow them. These words are a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. This sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, is the word preached, the preached word, because we're told preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. We believe this to be God revealing himself. And so when we preach the word of God, we are showing you God. We're showing him to you through the word that is preached. We therefore preach the word faithfully. We must be instructed. By the way. By the way, I'm not opposed to uh, topical preaching. I preach topical messages from time to time. But I believe that the, the agenda of the church ought to be to take a book of the Bible and preach it to you. I don't, I don't preach exactly verse by verse, but expository messages that are opening up the meaning of the word to you, to your mind, so that you are understanding the word. By the way. By the way, I'll say this, that a lot of the trouble that people have with the King James and archaic words and so on would be resolved if we would preach expository messages, if we would take and break down the word of God so that God's people are understanding it, instructed in it, and a value of expository preaching that I have learned as we've done it here at our church is that not only are you learning what passages mean, you are also learning how to approach the Bible. You're learning how to approach passages of Scripture. As we've gone through the book of 1 Samuel, have you not learned the way to look at 1 Samuel and the way to look at historical books? Has it not opened up the history of the Old Testament to you in a new and meaningful way and made it more accessible to you when you read 2 Samuel and 1 Kings and 2 Kings where we're not preaching. And this is, this is the way God meant it to be. He intended for the word to work this way. So that's why we put a high value on the words of the Bible as well and take time to point out to you the, the case and the gender and the tense and the person and those kinds of things as they are relevant, not to overwhelm you with it, not to turn it into, uh, you know, like a, a theology class, but to but just to show you the value of these words and how important these words are to us. These are the words of life. That's what we're saying. We're trying to communicate that with the urgency with which we preach the word from the pulpit and the priority that we place on the preaching of the word of God because this is your life. We enjoy singing. We sang an extra hymn tonight. I enjoyed that. I'd like to do that more. Sing a little bit more. We scaled back our singing when COVID came and we never scaled it back up again. And it's wonderful to sing. And it's amazing how much of our understanding of God comes from our songs for, for good or for evil comes from our songs and our singing. But the importance must be on the word of God. <clears throat> when we're armed with these words, we are armed against the devil. Not only is it the word believed and preached, but also the sword of the spirit is the word practiced. The word that we take, the preaching that we take, and we believe it and embrace it, and it becomes a part of our lives. It becomes a part of our thinking. It becomes a part of us and who we are. When we take what we hear from the word of God and when we dwell on it, and as the Bible says, not just us dwelling on the word, meditating on it, but letting the word of God dwell in us richly. We are changed by it, transformed by it. It is the power of God's word to transform you that arms you 
against the devil. The power of God's word to transform you, to change you into his image that also arms you against his attacks. Because the sword of the spirit defends us against the foe and frees us also to live for God. When I put God's word into practice, it becomes a weapon to me. God's word gives me my reason to resist temptation and Satan. And God's word defends me against Satan's deceptions. It is the word applied and empowered by the spirit that is our sword as well. The word of God applied and empowered by the spirit is the sword of the spirit. Our Lord Jesus Christ taught us how to use the word of God against Satan's temptations and devices. And we see the power of the word rightly applied and we learn to apply it rightly through faithful preaching, preaching that rightly divides the word of truth. William Gurnall points out that Jesus wasn't the only one to use scripture against Satan. Ask David what was the weapon with which he warded off the blows of this enemy made at him. And he will tell you it was the word of God. Concerning the works of men, by the word of thy lips, I have kept me from the paths of the destroyer. Psalm 17, verse 4. That is, Gurnall said, by the help of thy word, I have been enabled to preserve myself from those wicked works and outrageous practices to which others, for one of this weapon to defend them, have been harried. We sang tonight from Psalm 78. And I was interested as we were singing it. Do you want to look at it? Psalm 78 and verse 9 and remind yourself of what the psalmist said there. Because... We see on the part of the children of Ephraim a failure to believe and embrace and apply God's word. Psalm 78 and verse 9. The children of Ephraim being armed and carrying bows turned back in the day of battle. They kept not the covenant of God and refused to walk in his law and forgot his works and his wonders that he had showed them. Now this is a simple failure to believe and live by God's words on the part of Ephraim. That's the result. That's the product. And so the word of God applied and empowered by the Holy Spirit is our sword arms us for battle to go take the fight to the enemy. And the the sword of the Spirit is the word furnished by the Spirit. Notice that the weapon is described as the sword of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit gives this word, inspires this word. We know that this is God's mode of 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 inspiration. We've said it already that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. But we also know that the Holy Spirit not only gives the word, but also interprets the word for us. That, um, as Peter said, no prophecy of the scriptures of any private interpretation because it didn't come by the will of man but by the will of God. So the Holy Spirit teaches us all things and guides us into all truth. He did this immediately after Christ ascended to heaven by bringing all things to the disciples' remembrance whatsoever Jesus had taught them. Through their sacred writings, the Holy Spirit also teaches us all things. And then... The Holy Spirit, so the Holy Spirit brought to remembrance for the disciples what Jesus had taught them because they weren't taking good notes. 
They weren't like careful students, diligent students even. They, there were so many things that they missed that Jesus said. But then they remembered. How did they remember? Jesus promised that when he ascended to heaven, he would send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit would teach them and instruct them in all the things that he had, he had taught them. And then through them and their writings, because the apostles are the writers of the New Testament. And through their writings, then the Holy Spirit also enables it, it, He teaches us all things as well. The Holy Spirit works then through us who believe the Bible, who then go and boldly proclaim it. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my father and he see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. Now, this is what Jesus is telling us here. This is the sense in which the word of God is the sword of the spirit. Because the Holy Spirit... In case you didn't notice, the Holy Spirit is not speaking audibly to people today. He speaks through the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And how do they preach, right? How they hear, except someone preaches to them, right? This is what the Bible teaches. This is the way that the Holy Spirit is reproving the world. Through the mouth of faithful believers who believe the word and boldly proclaim it to others. And he then is defeating Satan through us because he puts the word in our mouth and we go out and proclaim it. And we are prepared then for battle through this. <clears throat> the spirit has furnished us with the sword and the sword is the word of God. And the sword is a powerful weapon, a two-edged sword cutting both ways, striking some with conviction and conversion and others with condemnation. But God has promised that his word will not return void, but it will accomplish the purpose that he sent it to accomplish. And so the psalmist said, gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty, and in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness, and thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Now this is the glory of the way God conducts warfare. He does not set out to war, to battle, in order to destroy the enemy, or where would we be? He seeks to subdue the enemy, and this, the arrows that go into our hearts don't kill us, at least they don't kill us dead, right? When my kids were little, they would they would say, um, my one son, Isaac, would never take his deads. That's how they said it. He won't take his deads. And we kill him and he won't die. He would always have some reason why he didn't die that time. And there would always be some other reason why he didn't die that time. But God doesn't kill us dead. He kills the old man and makes a new man. He kills the enmity by killing Christ in order to make peace with us through Christ. That's the gospel. And that gospel is to be preached and believed throughout your lives, not just by you, but to you. Isaiah 11, verse 4, But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. 
I was one of those wicked and he slew me and you too. Praise the Lord. Psalm 149 verse 6, let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance upon the heathen and punishments upon the people, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute upon them the judgment written, this honor have all his saints, praise ye the Lord. Now, the critical commentary reminds us that the sword, this word of wrath, in Isaiah 11 verse 4, has become the gospel of peace in Christ. What a powerful thing the sword of the Spirit is then. That it has the power to subdue and overcome our enemies and to make them glad to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we all want to be engaged in gospel preaching. Because by means of preaching the gospel, we have the, the joy and privilege of seeing a raging, foaming at the mouth enemy of Christ become an admirer, a worshiper of Christ. This is the power of the word of God as a weapon, both of defense and of offense, that it can neutralize the enemy in some cases can convert him so that he becomes friend. William Gurnall points to four particular ways the word of God is a mighty sword. First, he said, it hath a heart-searching power whereby it ransacks and rifles the consciences of men. Second, it exercises a power on the conscience to convince and terrify it. Third, it has power to comfort and raise a dejected spirit. And fourth, it hath the power of conversion, which none but God can affect. It's a mighty sword. So the word of God is a mighty sword. It persuades us to resist the devil and all of his temptations. It shows us the way to victory. It teaches us to overcome. <clears throat> it effectively answers the temptations that Satan hurls at us. It guides us in the right ways of the Lord. God is good to give us the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The second thing I want to consider is why do we need this sword? Why do we need it? I don't have an exhaustive list, probably not even a comprehensive list, but I'm going to give you a couple things here. Uh, first of all, we need this sword of the Spirit because Satan's attacks are always attacks against the truth. Always attacks against the truth. This is never more true than when Satan tempts you and lures you into sin. He always tells lies in order to do that, always. His temptations are always a lie, always a lie. All sin is built on a lie. It's, it's a lie against God. It's a lie about the sin itself. Satan loves to tell lies about the benefits of the sin and the blessing to yourself and the lasting effects of it and so on. He just lies. He tells you lies. And he preys on people who listen to those lies and love and believe those lies as well. In order to tempt you, Satan tells you lies about sinful things. He'll tell you that it isn't a big deal to God or that it shouldn't be a big deal to God. God shouldn't care so much about this if he does. He'll tell you <clears throat> that God will overlook it, that God understands your weakness. You know, God knows you're weak and so it'll be okay. He'll tell you that it won't do you any harm. Even sometimes he'll tell you that it'll help you. That this will help advance you. This will make you smarter, better, more clever. He'll tell you that you deserve it. That you've been struggling. That things have been difficult for you and you should take a break. You, you should reward yourself. You've been very faithful. You've been very careful. You've been very diligent. And uh, this little allowance isn't going to hurt anything. And it's kind of payback for all that you've invested in this. He'll tell you lies about the sin itself. As Thomas Brooks said it, he always tries to paint sin with virtue's colors. 
He shows you the bait and hides the hook. He's a good fisherman. We see examples of Satan's strategies against us in the way he went about tempting Eve, in the way he went about tempting Jesus himself. Well, you know that Satan in in tempting Jesus was bringing his best weapons, the weapons, the deceptions that he had perfected the most. So we ought to consider the way that Satan went about tempting Eve, who was naive, who was innocent, and tempting Christ, who was not naive or innocent. And Satan knew that if he was going to make Jesus fall, he would have to bring his best stuff. With Eve, Satan assured her that she would not surely die, that the consequences of her sin would not be nearly as severe as what she had imagined. He showed her, in fact, what made that forbidden fruit desirable for her. That it was good for food, but more importantly, that it was helpful towards self-improvement. Isn't that how it always goes? Huh? I mean, drug addicts think that they're smarter, like they can write a better paper when they're on drugs. Seriously, they do. Um, And people, you know, look, the philanderer, he thinks he's quite the man about town. He thinks that it makes him a better man than those faithful men who are faithful to their wives. This is the way Satan works with these things. Satan tempted Jesus. He tempted him to establish his authenticity by means of some mighty work. To show his worth, his merit, his value by means of some great accomplishment. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. That's that's it. By means of some mighty work to show that he was the real deal on that. He, in other words, he tempted Jesus to prove himself in a way that God never told him, commissioned him to prove himself. To realize, establish his authority. If Jesus did this, he would, in fact, have undermined his own authority. Because there's a word that I want to use here, and it's a big word, and it's not huge. Like, it's not out of reach, but I just am always nervous using big words because someone will tell me I'm cerebral or something like that. But the authority of Jesus is an authority that is self-attesting. And what that means is, That there is nothing outside of Jesus' own authority that confirms or verifies that authority. No external evidence that that proves that he is God. But rather, when you look at Jesus, you know. You know that you're seeing God. You know that. It's undeniable that this is God. Just as undeniable as it is when you look in the daylight, in the day sky, and see the sun. The sun has a glory, a brightness, a heat and power to it that is self-attesting. Doesn't require any other evidence. We don't have to have like a heat scale. We don't have to apply certain Standards that we've invented in order to confirm the authenticity of the sun. We know that's the sun. We know it's bright. We know it's hot. Even on a cold winter day, we know it. Even so, the Lord Jesus is the Son of God. We don't need some measure, some arbitrary way of measuring it or proving it or confirming it or verifying it. It is true. If Jesus turned stones into bread in order to prove that he was the Son of God, he would be denying his own authority and teaching us to rely on something else. Because the authority of Christ stands on on its own and does not require any outside verification. Satan tempted Jesus to meet Satan's standards 
for evidence. Isn't this temptation all around us all the time that we have to prove God, for instance, we have to prove God not according to his standards, but according to the standards that the world demands in order to know that God is God. And there's this constant pressure to do it. And any time we do, we fell into a trap. So often temptation in some way challenges the authority of Scripture in our lives. And we want God to do some mighty work in order to prove that his word is true. And we are tempted to doubt his word short of God giving us some special whisper, some special confirmation that we've demanded, that we have asked for. This is the way Satan tempts us. Is this big picture? I mean, obviously, this isn't a small thing like that temptation to steal a dollar from your mom's purse. And yet, all temptation flows down from these ultimate temptations. Most of the time, Satan tries to get us to rely on something else, something other than God's word to establish the authority, the authenticity of Scripture. Satan also tempted Jesus to seek a following for himself, as we pointed out to you this morning. By some mighty work he did, Rather than receiving the kingdom of God the way God intended that it should be established. Now understand. The way God intended that the kingdom, his kingdom be established through Christ was for Christ to die on the cross. Satan said, but you can get a following. Listen. And the devil taking him up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will give it. If thou therefore will worship me, all shall be thine. Look, it's not a stretch here to point out to you the way, as we said this morning, in order to gain a following, what preachers and churches do today is try to give the world more of what they want. We don't want to be different. The way that Jesus is able to meet the needs of the world is by not being the world, by being what the world needs, not what the world wants. And there's this constant temptation on our part to say that I will do what it takes to get a following, to get a crowd. That's what Jesus was tempted to do as well. In this temptation are a number of others, including the temptation to a divided loyalty. A temptation to seek glory and approval from men. This is another way that Satan tries to tempt us. That we would desire approval, applause, acceptance from the world. Instead of being different, unique, distinct from the world. God's peculiar people. Not that we are to be oddballs but peculiar in the sense of being God's special treasure, belonging particularly to him and showing it in what we value and what we seek and what we desire and what satisfies us. This is another way that Satan tries to tempt us. And yet another, Satan tempted Jesus to put God to the test to see if God really cared for him. If you really care for me. How many of us are guilty of that? Putting God to the test. God, if you're there. God, if you really care about me. You'll fix this. 
You'll supply this. You'll provide this. You'll do this for me. And he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Notice that he quoted scripture to him as well in that. And so we see the direction that Satan's temptations usually take, and we see our need for the word of God in the face of these kinds of temptations, because these are, we have to recognize, these are the most powerful temptations that we'll ever experience in our lives. Satan twists the Bible in order to take us, in order to make you think that you are the virtuous one, that you are pursuing what is right when in fact you are pursuing what is wrong and against God. And the only way we will discern in that is by knowing the word of God, believing it, living by it. A second reason why we need this sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is because Satan's attacks are always designed to draw you away from the truth, just to create distance between you and the truth. Predators know that if they, in order to get the prey, they have to separate someone, their prey, from the herd. And Satan knows that if he'll, if he's to get you, he has to separate you from the truth. If necessary, of course, he'll, what, and what I see him do most often is to separate you from your support network, your church first, to create distance from the church, cause you to be distant from it, and then to cause a distance to grow between you and the truth. But he mainly wants to turn your heart away from the truth of Scripture and get you to follow instead cunningly devised fables, philosophy that the Bible describes as vain deceit. So he seeks to elevate the tradition of men, the rudiments or first principles of the world that are in opposition to Jesus Christ. The sword of the Spirit instructs us in the right ways of the Lord and defends us against these satanic attacks on the truth. And when we know the word of God, and when we are invested in it, we recognize the attempts that Satan is making to do that, to cause alienation, isolation between you and members of the church. And look, this is a very practical thing. But what Satan does is he, he causes some, some turmoil with you and someone in the church, some tension there that produces a resentment that festers and causes you to distance yourself from the church or part of the church and even to resent other people who are friendly with the person that you're at odds with. And he's he's just calling you out. That's all he's doing. He's trying to separate you so that he can devour you. That's what he's doing. He does it through simple things. And the word of God would teach us better than that. We follow the word in our relationships and Satan cannot do that to us. Notice how Paul says to deal with these things. Colossians 2, verse 6 and 7. As we have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. How did you receive Christ? Was it not by faith? Did you not accept the gift of his grace. Paul says you're to walk that way. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. And he says this, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. The safeguard against enticing words and vain philosophy 
is the sword of the Spirit. The only way to be rooted and built up in Christ is by means of the word of God. The third reason we need the sword of the Spirit is because if Satan can't draw you away from the truth, then he aims to discourage you by it. Yes, Satan does try to discourage you with the word of God, wrongly applied. Always wrongly applied. Satan loves to turn scripture against us. And believe me, he knows the Bible better than you. He knows it well enough to know what will work with you. He knows you well enough. We see him do this with Eve. We even see him do it with Christ, the audacity. But if he is, has that much audacity to turn the Bible against Jesus, believe me, he'll turn it against you in a heartbeat. Satan often uses the word of God to accuse us, to bring us under condemnation when there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Thomas Brooks points out the way he'll argue that God will forgive us when he is tempting us to sin. He assures and reassures that God will forgive you for this. And then when he gets you to stumble, he then tells you that God would never forgive that. Never. And he reminds you of it over and over and over again. Knowing the promises of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God and the kindness of God, the compassion of God, the long-suffering of God strengthens you against this, these devices of Satan. So there's a third point that I want to make here. How do we use the sword of the Spirit? How do we use it? The word of God is used to answer the enemy, first of all, in his slanders, in his snares, in his lies, to speak the truth to him. Know God's commandments. They are the soldier's regulations. You need to know them so that you'll know where the line is. Jesus, for example, gives a line when it comes to murder and adultery, tells us what the line is. Here's how Satan operates. He comes in and overstates the law because he wants you to overreact. Either he wants you to resent the law and, and to believe that the law is too strict and overbearing or to minimize the law in reaction so that you won't uphold the standard that God has given us. Make sure you know what God says so that you'll know when the law is violated, so that you won't violate it. Know God's promises. They're the soldier's reward. God pays off by grace, not by debt. We know this. But God surely pays off. As I said, there hath not failed one word of all his good promise. When Satan comes to condemn, cling to the promises of God. Don't believe him. Believe the word. Use the word to argue against his deceit. And use the word to overcome him and defeat him. You notice the way Jesus answered Satan's misuse of scripture with a right use of scripture and then used scripture to assault Satan in, re in return. The Bible is effective for turning Satan back and resisting him. And look, a lot of times I think that we consider resisting Satan to involve stealing yourself, gritting your teeth, clenching your fists, and just obstinately, no. Now there is a no involved in saying no to Satan, but the best way to resist him is to quote scripture to him. Tell him what the Bible says. <clears throat> the Bible is effective for turning back Satan and resisting, but it is also effective 
for mortifying our members which are upon the earth. And the reason Satan is successful when he offers temptation is because we are very temptable because of our inward corruption. Inward corruption is defeated by the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God is used to instruct the believers so that we'll know the right way to go and avoid the wrong way. If we'll follow the Word of God, if we'll do what God says, and this is a simple thing, but so much of the armor of God involves simple things that really look like confidence in what God says. You know, I think of the breastplate of righteousness that is simply the positive righteousness that's created in us as Jesus Christ sanctifies us, makes us holy. So, so get this. Your vital organs, your heart, is protected from Satan by your efforts to live godly in Christ Jesus. To pursue what is right. The best way to avoid what is wrong is to pursue what is right. That's, that's it. You don't have to have a THD to understand that. You don't have to read Greek or Hebrew. It's laid out for you very simply. And the same thing is true of the Bible. The sword of the Spirit. The best way is to know it and live it and use it. That's it. So you should be meditating in the word. Of course, you should be reading it, but meditating in it, seeking to learn it and understand it so that you can both defend yourself and defeat the devil. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Didn't we learn that when we were kids, many of us? Isn't it one of the easiest verses that you could learn? And yet, is it not a powerful weapon in your hands? The, the word of God is used to encourage the believer by reminding him of his security in Christ and the blessings that await him in glory. Revelation 12, and I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of the brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. How did they overcome him? By the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. That's how they overcame so William Gurnall said it is for offense, offense. The, the sword as it defends the soldier, so it offends his enemy. Thus the word of God is as a keeping, so a killing sword. It doth not only keep and restrain him from yielding to the force of temptations without, but also uh, kills and mortifies his lust within, and this makes the victory complete. So as we enter the fray, I hope I can encourage you to be like Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the Ahoahite. You know about him, right? Eliezer, one of the Bible heroes, right? The son of Dodo, the Ahoahite. The Bible describes him this way. Now I want you to get this. This is important. And after him was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the Ahoahite. Have we covered that? You know who I'm talking about right now? One of the three mighty men with David. When they defied the Philistines that were gathered together to battle and the men of Israel were gone away, he arose and smote the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clave unto the sword. And the Lord wrought a great victory that day and the people returned after him only to spoil. Now that's the kind of Christian soldier we're to be. That when your hand is weary, now get this, the reason his hand claved to the sword is because his hand was weary. Have you ever done that? 
you're using a hammer and you hammer so much that you have to like pry it out of your hands. His, his hand clave to the sword so that the sword became like an extension of his hand. That he was out there killing and killing and fighting and fighting so that he could not let go of the sword. Be that way. God has given you this weapon, his own word, for your defense so that Satan won't overwhelm you, but also for offense so that you can overcome Satan. Value this sword. It is not like any earthly sword. Warren Wearsby pointed out that a material sword pierces the body, but the word of God pierces the heart. The more you use a physical sword, the duller it becomes, but using God's word only makes it sharper in our lives. A physical sword requires the hand of a soldier, but the sword of the spirit has its own power, for it is living and powerful. The spirit wrote the word, and the spirit wields the word as we take it by faith and use it. A physical sword wounds to hurt and kill, The sword of the Spirit wounds to heal and give life. But when we use the sword against Satan, we are not out to heal him, (laughs) but to deal him a blow that will cripple him and keep him from hindering God's work. We have such a weapon as this and such armor as God has provided for us. Surely, surely we can be confident in the battle. We can be secure in the protection that God has provided for us. I hope you'll take up the sword and join in the fight.